you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Last week was Easter Sunday. We celebrated together the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we talked about how thankful we were that that tomb was empty. The subversiveness of what was expected of Jesus turned out not to be the case of what they had thought. And Jesus had something else in mind entirely. And since that day, that resurrection in which Jesus conquered sin and shame and the grave and death and Satan himself, we now are walking in the footsteps of Jesus to come to that end. When all things are restored and made whole. When all things are as they should be. So we are in the Easter tide season, meaning we are being swept up in the story of Jesus together as a community. And so we are going to be, for the next six weeks, in the book of 1 John. 1 John. The 4th century church father, Augustine, has this to say about 1 John. This book is a very sweet and to every healthy Christian heart that savors the bread of God, and it should be consistently on the mind of God's holy church. But I choose it more particularly because of the special commands to us is love. The person who possesses the things which he hears about in the epistle must rejoice when he hears it. His reading will be like oil to a flame, For others, the epistle should be like flame set to firewood. If it was not already burning, the touch of the word may kindle it. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful that we get to be swept up in the tide, God. I pray that our footholds won't be able to stand that current, God, and we are swept away in your love. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for scripture as it speaks to us and engages us in the story of the son of God propelled by the Holy Spirit. We pray that our ears are open and our hearts are attuned to the things you have to say to us through your word. God, and all of us here in this place, whatever we represent or what we're going through or how we feel, the chaos that might be on our minds I just pray peace in this moment. Stillness. God, you're here. We're not going to invite you. We're just going to become aware of you because you've never left. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so some context of 1 John. I don't know how familiar we all are with this book, but is believed to be written by the Apostle John to the church of Ephesus. But what's interesting about this particular letter is that it does not follow the traditional Greco-Roman letter style or even the Jewish style where there is a formal greeting. Hello, this is John, sufferer, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, writing to you on behalf of the gospel of Christ to the church of Ephesus. That's not in here. It just kind of jumps right into it, kind of like the book of John. There's no time for all the detail. We got more important matters at hand. And then there's no conclusion. It just is what it is. So it it really reads more as like a sermon or a treatise. And 
meant to be maybe even circulated to the region and to the church as a whole and not just one specific community. So as we keep that in mind, the context in which it is written, we know, just as Augustine said, that this book has this sweetness, this richness, this thing that helps propel us as the church towards looking more like Jesus, which at Kaleo we practice the ways of Jesus together. So we lean in and we listen to what is being said. So we'll start off 1 John chapter 1 through chapter 2. Chapter 1 is only 10 verses, so don't freak out. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we had seen it, we testified to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was from the Father who has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Seems as if the author is wanting to make it abundantly clear that he, they, their community has seen Jesus in the flesh. They've touched him. They've touched the holes in his hand and the spear wound in his side. What they are saying is credible. So listen, church, because we have seen Jesus goes on in verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we proclaim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So John is writing to a community and it's apparent that he is responding to a specific crisis that is going on in these churches. One of the the things that causes us to speculate here even is the fact that it's so theologically pointed that there are credible writings saying this is who Jesus is because there are those in the community, we can call them docetists or or Gnostics or whatever you want to add to the end of a big word. There are people who were saying that Jesus was not fully human. He was spirit of God, but his flesh was sin. Therefore, he couldn't be fully human. And the writer is saying, no, no, we've seen him. We've touched him. We've walked with him. We've eaten with him. We've drank with him. We've seen him. We've heard from him. We've sat at his feet and he is who he says he is. And we know that Jesus was human. For we saw him cry. We saw him shout out in pain. 
We saw him stoop down and meet eyes with the children. We saw him spare the life of the adulterous woman. We saw him stand up to the religious leaders even though his life was on the line. We saw him bleed, this son of God. He was human. So this human Jesus gathers all of this attention in the region of Galilee and he moves on to Jerusalem and he is teaching and he is healing, leaving healing in his wake and he is speaking of the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. And the people don't fully understand him, but he's starting to gain this following and this following gets so enamored even with this idea of this messianic figure that they decided to pronounce him king, which little did they know of what they were actually saying, for they were saying the truth. Yes, Jesus was the king, just not the king that they had imagined. Jesus has a way of doing that in our lives, taking our expectations and turning it on its head, but showing us something so much sweeter something so much better that if we can confess the fact that we had these false expectations that didn't match with the love of God, then his grace would just cover us and we'd be blown away and swept away in the tide of who he is. Jesus got himself killed for being Jesus. Now, this was a very political and pointed death. It was a death that we talked about on Good Friday as they mocked him and made fun of his kingship and they hoisted him up on the cross with the crown of thorns and the mocking sign with the divine condescension of who God was in Christ. And we saw our king in all of his humiliation. And we wrestled with the fact that we called him our king. For that is not what we have in mind when we think of power, is it? So his disciples, when they see this, they scatter. They're out. We have a very dramatic scene of Peter when he is confronted. Hey, you're a Galilean. You're one of them. I am certainly not. Oh, I think that's one of them. You are one of them. No, I do not know this man. And then a third time with a curse. I tell you, I've never even seen this guy get away from me. And then Jesus meets eyes with him and he runs away in shame. This is the scene we have following the cross. G or Peter is gone. He's ran away. The disciples have dispersed. There's only been a few faithful women who have seen the crucifixion, who've gone to the tomb. The rest are in hiding. We see in John 20, these followers of Jesus, these Galileans, the ones who claimed Hosanna, Hosanna, the Davidic king is here, are now cowering in a room, and it's dark, and the doors are locked, for they're afraid for their lives. Now let's, let's sit here for a moment. Let's sit in this room with these disciples. For we have this side of the cross and resurrection that we hold on to when we always read about these silly disciples like, oh, don't you guys get it? Don't you get it? You're arguing about who's going to be on which side of God. Don't you get it? But these are real humans engaging with real implications in the very fact that they said Hosanna. The very fact that they proclaimed and anointed a king that wasn't Caesar meant they had a price on their heads and the religious leaders were going to sell them out. This isn't them losing their jobs. 
This isn't them making for an awkward Thanksgiving meal because of a political ideology that they hold that counters grandma. This isn't a thing that, that is a menial implication for them. No, they are going to die the very same way and they are terrified. They are hiding. Have you ever been in a place like that in your life where it seems so dire of a situation, all you want to do is throw the covers over your head and not be seen? That's where they are. There was these rumors that Mary Magdalene had seen Jesus. She told them, and that was kind of cool, but, you know, ah, raise, it, raise yourself from the dead. I'll stay in this room for a little bit longer. Mary, I love you. I think you saw something. I do. I don't discredit that. You, you seen something. But they're there, and then all of a sudden, Jesus, who's been dead for three days, meets them in this room, and he says, peace be with you. They see Jesus, their king, and like the expectation shattering Jesus he is, again, their minds are blown away and they don't fully know the implications, but they are emboldened because we know that they leave the room. When they see Jesus and they accept his peace, they are willing and bold enough to walk into the hostility of the people who have the price on their head. Emboldened, they leave the room. And what do they do? They do what Mary did and they start telling people with more empathy to Mary now. They find more of their friends, their followers, one in particular, Thomas, and they let Thomas know Christ is risen. And now, when we see this th scene, I think a lot of us have, I mean, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption. A lot of us have grown up in the church or in church culture. I, you can nod your heads and, and just shake your head violently, no, and then we can have coffee, talk about your experience. But a lot of us come from church cultures, and for me, what I have in my head, which I might be just going, I'm... I'm a Baptist Texan, okay, so this might just be way off. Just bear with me. If you can relate, just give me the affirming eye contact. Thank you, Dom. But I, I get these, like, pageants. These Easter, Do you remember the Easter plays, these pageants? And, and there are these people dressed in these Walmart, like, cut cloth, you know, and then, like, the frayed belts and stuff. And there are a bunch of, bunch of people walking around. And I don't know. It just seems so, like silly to me. You know, this just like walking around. Sometimes there's a track playing or they have their lines. And when I read the story, sometimes I, I picture this goofy scene of this flat line by line where they're in the room and all of a sudden Jesus is there and they're like, oh, just bad acting. Oh, okay. You know, and, and Jesus is like doing the Jesus thing, peace be with you all saintly and stuff and glowing. And, and they're like, oh, that's great. And then they go it scene ends, curtains fade. There's the shuffling and the talking and the coughing in the crowd. And then next scene goes on. And you see Thomas who's sitting on a log being all stoic and brooding and skeptical. And he has this scowl on his face and they walk up to him. We have seen the risen Jesus. And Thomas says, oh no, that can't be unless I see it for myself. It is, mm -mm. I have to see it. And then end scene, right? I don't know why that's in my head. I felt like I'd killed that. Maybe, I don't know. 
But to, to really place ourselves in the narrative that is taking place, I think that we have to feel the emotions of these disciples and feel the implications that they are risking. And I have so much empathy for who Thomas is that I think he gets such a bad rap. I see this happening in this prolonged, boring drama that's about a series long of just dialogue of these friends pleading with one another saying, I have seen the risen Christ and him saying, I wanna believe you, I really do. Nothing would make me happier, but my mind cannot wrap its head around the fact of what you were saying. It, it seems crazy and if I say it, I know that I'm extra dead. I might have a chance to get away right now, but if I am to, to say that I believe Jesus has risen from the dead, I know. I, don't, I, I just don't think that intellectually I can make that connection for that risk. And so unless I see what you saw, I, I'm sorry, friends. I'm out. And then Jesus appears on the scene and he looks at Thomas and I don't think he's angry I don't think he pops up saying, you, sir, have failed the test. He sees him and he says, do you, you need this? Here you go. I'll meet you here. I'll meet you where you're at. Touch it. Feel it. I'm human. I'm alive. The cross killed me, but it couldn't hold me. For I did rise and I've got bigger plans. And Thomas believed and Thomas believed. My empathy comes with Thomas because faith, and many of you know this because we have had these conversations, but faith is not something that just comes naturally to me. I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in church. I did the whole deconstruction thing and could walk away any day now. But there's something that's grabbing me that's keeping me because for a while, what I lost sleep about is the fact that I was ashamed of the fact that I had these doubts, that I had these questions. Instead of being a good boy, a good preacher's kid, a good Baptist Texan, a good pastor even, just take it and have faith. But for me, I, I, can't, risk my, I can't risk it all to say this thing. But time and time in my life, there's been times where, where the story of Jesus meets me in such a way that it is as if my hands are touching his and I'm touching his side because I can't help but believe where the narrative meets the objective reality of this world is what I can't shake. There's something at play, something bigger, something moving that draws me in that I believe drew Thomas in, that I believe is drawing us in. So tonight, one of the few takeaways I want to have is one, I, I feel like this should be a space where you have permission to have your doubts. The church has lost a lot of people over the years because they think that they're not allowed to have them. They're not leaving because they have them. They're leaving because they think they're not allowed to have them. Because we've created these spaces of psychological certitude where we say it is what it is and you need to fall in line. And what happens with these systems is they become confining. And in fact, they even limit exactly who Jesus is. Kind of like what John is saying 
to his church in Ephesus. It's a different reality. The, the Gnosticism of the time is a little bit different, but it's still a crisis, and it's still getting wrong who Jesus is. And we fight it. And when we have a limited idea of who Jesus is, we prevent ourselves from being a community that walks in light. That walks in light. I struggle with this passage, honestly. I struggle with the fact that the message says that if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves or the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, we are faithful and judge and will be forgiven of our sins. That sounds good. Jesus has, has died for these sins and it says, go and sin no more. I struggle with that because I know that I still do it. Am I in the darkness? Those are the things that keep me up at night. It's like, am I? And should I should I even have a microphone? Can I can I even have these type of conversations knowing what I know about myself? If you knew these thoughts and this skeptical mind that's going on, would you run out and go somewhere else? If you knew these thoughts, man, no, I I, I can't I can't even deal with that. Go and sin no more. And when you proof text this and you use it out of context, it's used as a way of this is how you live. Here are the rules, follow them. But where I find hope is found in the last two verses of today's election. Chapter two, verses one through two. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I do care about your purity. I do care about your righteousness. I do care about you walking in an ethical way, flourishing in this world. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice of our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. That gives me hope. That gives us permission. We don't strive to sin, but we don't deceive ourselves and say that we don't. One of the beautiful things I find about AA and Celebrate Recovery, I've been to a few of these things, um, is just the radical honesty present in those rooms. I don't have anything else to hide. I'm just going to say it all. And it will make a lot of us uncomfortable, the stories that we hear. But there's something that rings abundantly true that if God has enough grace for this person, he should have enough for me. So we've got to push this shame out of the way and know that we have an advocate speaking on our behalf to the Father, knowing that whatever we've done or whatever we continue to do and whatever we're going to do, there's grace. I see a lot of wasted grace today, just in the church as a whole bunch of people who idealize a, a vision or an expectation of what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus and falling short time and time again only to be covered with shame and guilt and unworthiness. 
where we scroll through our feeds and we see impressive person after impressive person or word after word, even though it's our 10th take and we don't see that of these, these scripture readings and proof textings and just pandering to whoever they're pandering to. That's another bitter thing that I have if you're not picking that up. But we see this polished even intellectualized at times or, or this blessed life version of what it looks like to follow Christ. And we struggle with that because the reality is what Jesus is saying, he's risen from the dead, but there's still a tension between light and darkness. There's still a tension between the resurrection and the reality that sin is still in the world. We can't gloss over it. We mustn't. As we are on our second Sunday of Easter, the new light of the risen Christ is still blinding to our eyes as we try to adjust and then still shadows fall. If you've been alive this week, I'm sure shadows have fallen in some manner or form in your life. And the reality is they are here, but the encouragement is that we're not alone. We are not alone. John is writing to this community. And the words he keeps using is the plural form, children and we. We were never, ever meant to do this Christian faith thing alone. Just as the disciples, the friends, made a point to go find their other friends, they came to him as a community and refused to let him be in isolation in his doubts. He was allowed to have his doubts, but they refused to let him be in isolation as he had them, and they brought him in, and they continued to follow Jesus as a community. That's the subversive nature of the church. That's the subversive nature of the gathering. Individualized and personalized faith has its benefits, but it was never meant to be as such. We are meant to be a community. We are meant to do this together. The band's gonna come up as we conclude with just a few words of hopeful encouragement. But this life that John is writing to, this deeply theological letter or treatise to this church where he just, we could, we're going to spend six weeks in it, but we're going to pull out as much richness and depth as we can. It's talking about the story of God. It's talking about the story of who God is and how we relate to God and one another. And it comes down to time and time again, the story of Jesus is that God loves us and we need one another. And then we worship God in the best form when we love one another, when we love God. We love God and we love one another as we're created in the image of God. And we're going to flesh it out over and over and over again. And I have to personally just be at the point where we are never fully going to be satisfied with having the answers of what God looks like. That time will come and we live in that hope. But until then, we have each other. So if you give me permission to doubt as one of your pastors, please feel free to do the same. But please don't do it alone. Because you got us. We're here. 
this faith in which we speak, it goes beyond a sermon. It goes beyond a tweet. It goes beyond a song. It goes beyond even just the things that we scroll through. This faith is meant to be this deeply formed life in the Spirit of God aiding us. So what my hope is this, that that breakthrough that we're always chasing or hearing about, is that it is found in the hindsight of a life well-lived in community with one another, worshiping Jesus. And that's the hope. So when you're struggling, when you're doubting, when you can't quite wrap your mind around this Jesus and what he has done and said, I pray to you that you listen to the words of the author of this book. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're seen, you're loved, and you're not alone. Jesus, we want to have the words. We want to have the answers even. And we are so thankful that we don't have to. God, continue to equip us with your practices and your ways. We know that the Jesus life has got to be the best life. We'd rather be wrong about you than right about anything else, God. God, allow us the permission to walk this thing called faith out together. Thank you for Thomas. God, may we doubt and have faith and worship and eat together, talk to one another, text each other, help each other move, show up when things are hard, show up when we celebrate, show up when we're just bored and want to hang out. And in that, God, we have hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.